Welcome to a sanctuary for the mad and sane alike, where order and insanity reign supreme. Welcome to the Mind of Sanity. I'm your host, Richard the Wise. Today is going to be a blast. Why do you ask? Because we've got the last knight of the round table in the house. The once in future king. Not really. Arthur Uther Pendragon. Howdy. You just fucking say howdy? No. Um, okay. Alright, anyway, Arthur, tell us about yourself. I am known as King Arthur Pendragon, born to Uther Pendragon and Queen Graeme. My story is interwoven with tales of chivalry, honor, and the quest for the just kingdom. Raised in secrecy, I was destined to wield the magical sword Excalibur and become the leader of the Knights of the Round Table. Together, we sought to uphold the values of truth, justice, and unity in the realm of Camelot. My reign was marked by quests of the Holy Grail, battle against foes such as Mordred and the forces of darkness, and the pursuit of a harmonious society. Though my tale is shrouded in myth and legend, the spirit of King Arthur endures as a symbol of courage, nobility, and the pursuit of a better world. I understand there was a little issue with uh, how you became king. Care to elaborate? Well, the tradition, traditional version of the story suggests that my father, Uther Pendragon, fell in love with Ygraine, the wife of Duke Golois of Cornwall. With the aid of the sorcerer Merlin, Uther assumed the appearance of Duke Golois uh, and spent a night with Ygraine, resulting in my conception. Wow, that sure sounds consensual and not icky at all. Following my birth, I was entrusted to with the care of Merlin, who advised that I should remain hidden until the, it was right for me to reclaim my rightful place as king. After Uther's death, Britain fell into a state of chaos and division. With many vying for the throne, to establish my legitimacy, Merlin devised a test known as the Sword and Stone. The sword was magically embedded in the stone, and only the true king of Britain would be able to pull it free. Knights and nobles from across the land attempted to remove the sword, but failed. As fate would have it, I, a young squire at the time, was inadvertently able to remove the sword, thus providing and proving my lineage and rightful claim to the throne. So you pulled the sword from the stone, and everyone was happy and nothing bad happened? Unfortunately, you're absolutely right. My pulling of the sword from the stone did not initially please everyone. When news of my feet spread throughout the land, it caused quite a stir and ignited a mix of reactions among the people. Some were skeptical and doubted the legitimacy of my claim. They questioned how a young and relatively unknown individual such as myself could be the true king of Britain. Others, particularly those who had aspirations of their own to the throne, viewed my sudden emergence as a threat to their own ambitions and power. Who was against you, exactly? There were nobles and lords who wanted the throne to Britain for themselves. On top of them, there were some discontented nobles within the existing ruling elite. There were those who resisted the change I sought to bring. Some nobles were hesitant to relinquish their power and privileges to the new king. They feared losing influence or feared that my vision for Camelot would disrupt the status quo. There were also certain factions that clung to the old ways and resisted the changes I proposed 
They preferred the fragmented and feudal system that allowed for their own autonomy and authority. They were wary of centralized power and ideals of justice, equality, and chivalry that I aimed to instill. Then, of course, there were outside influences, like the Saxons, led by figures like King Surtic, were a constant threat to Britain. They sought to conquer and dominate the land, posing a significant challenge to my efforts to establish a unified kingdom. Engaging in battles and conflicts against these invaders was a crucial part of my reign. Okay, so you take the sword from the stone, nobles get all uppity, but what's the first thing you do as the newly named king? Well, due to the number of people who didn't particularly appreciate me becoming king in the first, I need to unite my people. Convince them I would serve them. Uniting Britain was a profound and challenging endeavor, one that required unwavering determination and strategic thinking. I recognize the importance of bringing together the disparate factions and tribes under a common purpose, and I embarked on a mission to achieve this unity. Through diplomacy, I engaged in negotiations and forged alliances with neighboring kingdoms. A tribal leader, I emphasized the need to cooperate and collaborate to face our common enemies and protect the land we all called home. By building these alliances, I aim to foster sense of shared identity and purpose among the Britons. Fortunately, as I did, external threats such as the Saxons came knocking. I decided to take a proactive approach by leading military campaigns, rallying with brave warriors and knights that tried to fight me. To my advantage, my victories not only secured the realm, but also instilled a sense of pride and was tremendous in unifying the Britons. Yeah, that's all boring. Tell me about the Saxons. In the centuries leading to my reign, they began migrating to the Isles, gradually establishing their presence and expanding their territories. Saxons were known for their warrior culture, naval prowess, and formidable military strength. The Saxons posed a threat to the native Britons, as they sought to expand their influence, I established their own kingdoms. Their invasion and conquest challenging the stability and sovereignty of the Britons, resulting in conflicts and power struggles. In my efforts to repel the invaders, I waged numerous battles against their forces. The Saxon threat was not limited to a single confrontation, but persisted throughout my reign, demanding constant vigilance and dedication of resources to defend the realm. Luckily for me, I had my Knights of the Round Table. Speaking of, how did the Knights of the Round Table begin? Well, I believe the importance of unity and quality among my Knights, where everyone's opinion was as valued as my own. So I was to establish a forum where all my noble companions could come together as equals, without any distinction of rank or status. So I decided to create a special table, a round table, to be precise. That sounds absolutely silly. A round table just solves everything? You're right. But while the idea behind the round table was quite simple, it was also very powerful. Instead of having a head of the table, which would imply one knight was more important than the other, the round shape ensured that every knight seated around it was on equal footing. This meant that all knights had an equal voice and could freely express their opinions and ideas. 
Now the symbolism of the round table went beyond the shape. It represented the ideals of fairness, camaraderie, and a collective decision-making. It was a space where trust, respect, and brotherhood thrived. By gathering my knights around this table, I aim to foster a sense of unity and a shared purpose among us. The Knights of the Round Table were knights of unparalleled valor and honor. They pledged to uphold virtues and chivalry, protecting the weak and fighting for justice. Each knight brought their unique skills and strengths to the table with the sole idea of defending our home of Camelot. We formed a strong bond of loyalty and brotherhood. We became more than just knights fighting side by side. We became a family. Was it like a gradual thing? Like, did they come one by one, or did all the knights show up all at once? How did it work? No, the assembly of knights of the round table was not a one-time event, but rather a gradual process that unfolded over time. The knights were selected based on their prowess, honor, and loyalty. They were chosen from different parts of the kingdom, and often from noble lineages or families known for their valor and chivalry. Some of the renowned knights, such as Sir Lancelot, Sir Gawain, and Sir Percival, joined the round table in the early stages and played significant roles throughout its existence. Over time, as my reputation grew and the kingdom faced various challenges, more knights were invited to join the table. They were typically knights of, of proven skill, valor, and dedication to the ideas of chivalry. The process of assembling the knights continued until the round table reached its renowned status as an esteemed gathering of the finest knights in the land. The gradual nature of assembling the knights of the round table allowed for the selection of most deserving and noble knights, ensuring that the ideals of the round table were upheld. It also allowed for the development of personal relationships and bonds among the knights, further strengthening their unity and purpose in serving the realm. Uh, who were the knights exactly? Can you name them? Well, there was myself and the men that would become my brothers. Lancelot, Gawain, Galahad, Percival, Tristan, Bedivere, Kay, Bors, Agravane, Gaharis, Gareth, and Lamorak. You keep describing them as your brothers and as a family. Are you sure you want to keep describing them like that? Of course. Together we embarked on grand quests, defended the realm, and sought to bring peace and harmony to the land of Camelot. The bonds between us are unbreakable. Didn't one of those knights fuck your wife? <clears throat> yes. Let's talk about that. The story of Sir Lancelot's affair with Queen Guinevere, my wife, is well known. I don't think we need to go over that. You want to talk about you fucking your sister? The romance between Sir Lancelot and Queen Guinevere was a heart-wrenching and complicated situation. Sir Lancelot, one of my most trusted and noble knights, had always displayed unwavering loyalty and dedication to me and the ideals of chivalry. Queen Guinevere, my beloved wife and queen of Camelot, was admired for her grace and beauty, and she held a special place in my heart. As time passed, I noticed a growing connection between Sir Lancelot and Queen Guinevere. Their interactions shared quests and intellectual discussions revealed a deep understanding and emotional bond that I could not ignore. Although I did not want to believe it, the signs were becoming harder to dismiss. As whispers of their forbidden love reached my ears, the profound betrayal and heartache was a lot. 
the realization that my most trusted knight and beloved wife had developed feelings for each other filled me with a mixture of anger, sadness, and confusion. Ultimately, the romance between Lancelot and Guinevere threatened to undermine the unity and stability of Camelot. I strained the bonds of loyalty among the knights, created divisions within the court, and posed a significant challenge to the ideals of honor and chivalry we held dear. It was a painful journey filled with personal sacrifice and difficult decisions that would shape the fate of Camelot. Wasn't he, like, your best friend? Yes. Sir Lancelot was not only one of the most esteemed knights at the round table, but also a dear friend and confidant. Our bond went beyond the realm of knightly camaraderie. We shared a deep friendship and mutual respect for one another. Sir Lancelot's loyalty and unwavering dedication to our cause was unparalleled. He was a trusted advisor and a pillar of strength during the many challenges we faced together. That sucks. Did you forgive them both? Despite the pain and betrayal caused by their affair, I recognize the complexities of the human emotion and the influence of fate. Forgiveness, however, did not come easily or immediately. The revelation of the affair shook the foundation of Camelot. It took time and introspection for forgiveness to begin to take root. The depth of our friendship and the realization of Lancelot's own remorse and guilt may have contributed to my ability to forgive. Eventually, they had my blessing. You can't control who you fall in love with. Sometimes there's just a connection. Tell me about Guinevere. She was the love of my life and queen of Camelot, a woman of remarkable beauty and grace. Her presence illuminated the court with her charm and elegance as my beloved wife. Guinevere was not only a symbol of beauty, but also a source of inspiration and strength. Her wisdom and guidance were un, were invaluable to me. As I navigated the challenges in ruling a kingdom, her intellect and keen insights often provided a different perspective, helping me make wise decisions for the realm. Where did you meet her? It was the court of her father, King Leo de Grance of Camelard. The moment I laid eyes on her, I was captivated by her grace and radiance. Her presence commanded attention, and her beauty was renowned throughout the land. For good reason, I might add. She was stunning. I was instantly drawn to her. But what really struck me was the warmth she exuded. Once I had the opportunity to spend time with Guinevere, I jumped at it. We engaged in conversations and got to know each other better. The seeds of our love story sown. Little did I know, at the time that our fates would become intertwined, leading us on the path filled with both joy and heartache. So sorry, dude. This must be real hard. Let's talk about your son, uh, Mogard, instead. What? Something wrong? Nothing. So tell me about Mogard, then. Mordid is a tragic story, to be honest. I blame myself for a lot of it. Driven by the relentless desire for power and thirst to claim the throne of Camelot for himself, he resented his lineage and sought to surpass me, his own father. It pains me to even think of the resentment he felt towards me. The ambition and hate consumed him. His betrayal and rebellion against me were heartbreaking. Mordred manipulated events and stirred dissent within Camelot, sowing the seeds of discord and division. He formed alliances 
disloyal knights and exposed the affair between Sir Lancelot and Queen Guinevere, intending to undermine my authority and create chaos within the kingdom. He formed alliances with disloyal knights and gained support from those who opposed my rule, ultimately leading to a rebellion. And I'm guessing all of this came to a head? Correct. This accumulation of his ambition led to the Battle of Camelot, a climactic conflict between Mordred's forces and my loyal knights. The battle was fierce, and it resulted in significant loss of life and both, on both sides. My son and I found each other on the battlefield. The duel began with a clash of swords, but ended with us both meeting Grimm. Mordred's ambitions brought about the downfall of Camelot. The kingdom that once stood as a beacon of hope and harmony, his actions shattered the unity and stability we had worked so hard to establish, highlighting the devastation, consequences that unchecked ambition can have on individuals and the people and country around them. That's actually really sad. Wait, I'm sorry, I completely spaced. Mordred is your son, but Guinevere isn't his mother, right? She is not. Just out of curiosity, and I'm just spitballing here. Who is his mother? Morgan Le Fay. And who is she? My half-sister. Gross. I did not know at the time. Still gross. Can we move on, please? Fine, I'm also gonna fuck my sister. We haven't really talked about Merlin yet. I thought he was an important part of your story. Ah, Merlin. The wise and enigmatic sorcerer. Merlin was more than just a mere mentor to me. He was a guide, a confidant, a dear friend and father figure. It was he who guided me on my path and helped shape me into the leader I became. His wisdom and magical prowess were unparalleled. I relied on his counsel in times of both peace and turmoil. Merlin's prophetic visions were another remarkable aspect of his character. He foresaw the rise and fall of Camelot, the betrayal of Mordred, and the ultimate fate of our kingdom. His insights guided my decisions and offered glimpses into the future. Although the weight of his prophecies sometimes burdened me with the knowledge of the challenges to come. Though his fate shrouded in mystery, with some accounts suggesting his imprisonment or transformations, Merlin's legacy endures. I wouldn't be surprised if he was still around somehow. He's tricky like that. He breed hates me. He does? Indeed he does. Stories and myths surrounding Merlin have roots in ancient Celtic and Welsh folklore. Merlin, Myrdin, and Welsh was originally depicted as a prophet and seer associated with the Welsh legends and poetry of the early Middle Ages. In those early ages uh, and Welsh tales, he was often portrayed as a wild and prophetic figure associated with the force and the wisdom of nature he possessed supernatural powers and was said to have foreseen great battles and the fate of kings. He told me some of the stories, tales from when I was a young man, he liked to call them. Question, when did your story, like, when did it become famous? Well, the most famous and influential book written about me is Sir Thomas Mallory's The Death of Arthur, published in 1485 is considered a definitive work of the Arthurian tales 
as it compiles and retells many of the legendary stories surrounding myself, the Knights of the Round Table, and even our quest for the Holy Grail. What's the uh, what's the oldest? Uh, the oldest known surviving Arthurian text is the History of the Britons, attributed to the Welsh chronicle Nennius. Although the exact date of its composition is uncertain, it is believed to have been written around the 9th century. It provides a brief account of my military exploits, such as the Battle of Bedan, where I fought against the invading Saxon armies. It is not as elaborate or detailed as later works, but still contributes to the early development of my legend. Honestly, it is more of a historical chronicle than a full-fledged narrative, and I'm far from the focus of the book. Other early texts that mention me include Welsh poems dating back to the 7th century. So to verify, the oldest known story of you is from the 7th century, but the legend of Merlin is even older? Correct. I'm not sure how old he was when I met him, but he was certainly not young. There were oral traditions about him that predate me. I feel I should point out I also did not live in this 7th century. I was long dead by then. I'm going to have to cut out this entire part, by the way. Ben's being an asshole. <laughs> it's easier to cut, though. So, fun story there is there's this author. She wrote this very popular and terrible book series that involved wizards and a school. She claimed Merlin went to this school as a student, and the school was founded in the 9th or 10th century, according to her. That would, that would make Merlin at least 200 years old as a student. Yep, not like it matters. She's not well-liked anymore. Tell me about your sword Excalibur. Excalibur is not just any ordinary sword. It is a symbol of power, nobility, and the rightful sovereignty of the king. The sword I took from the stone, while magnificent, was not the true Excalibur. The real one was actually given to me by the Lady of the Lake. She emerged from the mystical waters, presenting the sword to me as a sign of my destiny to become the true and rightful king of Britain. The blade was imbued with magical properties, making it not just an extraordinary weapon, but one that could never be broken or dulled in battle. Its scabbard had the power to protect the wearer from most mortal wounds, it became a symbol of justice and embodiment of the ideals I sought to uphold in Camelot. What, uh, what happened to it? At the end of the Battle of Camlan, I knew Morrigan had spoken, and my fate set. Even Excalibur's legendary scabbard wasn't saving me. Recognizing the importance of the sword, with my dying breaths, I ordered Sir Bedivere to return Excalibur to the Lady of the Lake. Reluctantly, Bedivere complied. He threw the sword back into the lake, where it was caught by the lady, Lady's hand. Who was she? The Lady of the Lake, I mean. I don't even know the answer to that question. In some tales I've heard, she's referred to as Vivian, or Nemu. Regardless, she has some connection to Merlin. Some say she's an old apprentice of his. Some say a lover, or of some sort. But I tell you, I know two things. First, she's an incredibly powerful sorceress. Enchantress. Second, 
whatever their connection, she hates Merlin. Wait, if she has an issue with Merlin, why give you the sword, given your, you know, connection with him? You called him a father figure earlier. Look, she was a wise and mystical being who understands the greater forces at play. I do not claim to understand why she does anything. She may have recognized that I, as the Chosen King, need the power and symbolism of a legendary sword to establish and maintain my authority. Or maybe she thought if I became king, she'd have a chance to do whatever she wanted with Merlin. I honestly don't know. Or maybe she's Queen Mab in disguise. That woman terrifies me. Did you know it was snowing in my backyard the other day? It's fucking summer. Even I won't mess with the queen of ice and darkness. Good call, dude. She's, uh, scary. But anyway, man, it was a pleasure having you. Anything else you'd like to say before we go? It has been an honor to share my story with you and your audience. Though I could have done without the mocking. <laughs> that ain't gonna happen. Let me leave you with this humble message. In this grand adventure we call life, let us strive to live with honor, to be a beacon of light in the darkest of times. May we always extend a hand to those in need, lifting them up and inspiring them to reach their fullest potential. Together, let us build a world where the virtues of compassion, justice, and kindness prevail. Farewell, and may your path be guided by the noblest of intentions. Ladies and gentlemen, fair maidens and dashing rogues, we have reached the end of our journey. We sincerely hope you have relished every moment of it. So smash that follow button and tell all your friends. Then, sign us off. Gunta off.